the way to the message. You know, when you guys go downstairs and you get to learn about come, come on around. Come on, Lauren. Come on, Beth. So we, we, we open up God's Word. You guys go downstairs and you learn God's Word. Today we're going to learn God's Word a little bit together at the beginning. But I want to begin. Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9 together. You guys are going to go study on your own uh, in just a moment. But I wanted to start um, with this. Yesterday, we had a really fun time. Some of you helped out, in fact. Yesterday, we had a, a work day, and we cleaned up leaves around here. And then we went to someone else's house, uh, whom we love and care about here in town. And we took care of the leaves in their yard and did some pickup and cleanup. It was awesome. And some of you guys helped. And it was really helpful yesterday. We had some particular things that I loved. Power tools. <laughs> we had some power tools there yesterday. Thanks to... I love power tools. And uh, I really, really thought this was awesome. Do you know what this is, Nora? Do you know what this is? That's a chainsaw. Isn't this awesome? This is so cool. It's kind of small. Yep, you're right. That's a good observation, which is kind of to my point. It's actually Henry's. Henry was helping out. Henry was helping out. Henry's going to blow the rest. Henry had his leaf blower, and he was helping. But you know the great thing about that? What Henry has, and what this is, is actually a model of the real thing, right? This is just, this is like, um, this is like a, a small type. It's, it's like something that reminds us, because when I see this coming, when I saw yesterday Leo showed up, and he had one, he had a, he had a lawnmower that he was pushing. And when I saw him pushing that little lawnmower, does anybody have one of those types of lawnmowers? Johnny and Jake, you guys have one of those on? It's, yeah, you, Ashley's got a lawnmower? Yeah, so when I saw, I saw Leo, he showed up with the lawnmower, and I thought, that's good, because his dad's coming behind him. That means that something's coming with some power tools, and we, it helped us with our cleanup. So guess what, guys? In the Bible, hey, Henry, can I play with that? You're going to give it to it's yours, I know. So it, it's, it's okay. We got to go. Have you ever seen a model of something? You know what a model is? You know what a model is? I got to go with our family about a week ago. We got to go to the Whaling Museum down in New Bedford. And I love ships. I love ships and power tools. And they can be kind of pricey. But here's the, we got to go to the, the Whaling Museum, and we saw a model of a whaling ship. It almost, it was so big, it almost looked real. You know what happens in the Bible, guys? You know what happens? Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? That's so cool. Sometimes we look at things in the Bible. There's different types and pictures in the Bible. We sometimes see when there's things like the temple or the tabernacle or there's things like prophets and priests and kings, that those are actually types. That those are actually formed part of the story to point us as a, as a miniature, as a model that points us to the great hope, that points us to the great hope who is the great king. It points us to the great hope who is our king. You notice when we talk about King David, does anybody know who King David is in the Bible? One of the greatest kings, the king of Israel. Thank you, Graham. And David's life is meant to be a, a picture of a great, good king. But it points us to an even greater king who is fuller and more powerful and offers us more. These things can be enjoyed and they're a gift to us, but it's pointing us to something greater. Does that make sense? In the Bible, we're supposed to look to the person and the work of Jesus, and we see little hints, shadows, types, 
pictures and windows that point us to the real thing who is Jesus. Can I pray for you guys as you're downstairs? Do this as a homework. Go home. Today we're going to learn about uh, our the, the adults are. We're going to learn in 2 Samuel chapter 9 where David, King David, is kind to someone who is disabled and crippled. And he shows mercy to them. And it would be true to say that it's a, it, let, let's be like David and let's show mercy to our friends and to others who have need. But you know what? It's actually something. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Does that make sense? So I encourage you to tell your parents to go home and you guys read together 2 Samuel chapter 9. But before you guys head out, can I pray for you? Father, we thank you for our children. We pray that you would continue to grow them in wisdom, understanding, and faith, and trust of you and the great story that you have uh, laid out for us. You've revealed yourself. What a precious gift we have. And we ask that you would help us all to see in Scripture uh, our great hope, our Messiah, the promised greater King and Son of David, King Jesus, the Good Shepherd. We pray in his name and ask your blessing on our little ones and us, our hearts and minds, as we encounter your word. In Christ's good name, amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you, man. All right, would you please do turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I think it's on page 260. Recall from last week, we had covered in this, the narrator has us uh, following, not exactly precisely chronologically, but thematically, this season in David's life. He's now the king over all of what's united as Israel. And one of his first steps in office is to provide security and protection, stability, peace for the people of God as promised to Israel. The way that he did that is by conquering neighbor, neighboring enemies. That would have been typical. Uh, but this is not just a raid to go gain new ground or new territory or new uh, agricultural goods or resources. It's actually, last week we talked about this, that it's actually an outworking. It's, it's really a, an expression of God's justice because David is, is going and not only attacking their enemies, but God's enemies because they have a position against him. And so that was part of the story. That's why we covered chapters 8 and chapter 10. But sandwiched between those two things is another important thing that David did at the beginning of his, near the beginning of his administration and his rule and reign with the power that God had given him as king over Israel. And that pertains to uh, this man, this young man, Mephibosheth. If you would please stand and let's read and uh, stand in deference to God's word. And we're going to read this whole chapter Follow, please, with me, if you would. This is really King David at his best at this particular season. And next fall, when we pick back up in the latter half of 2 Samuel, we'll see uh, David not so at his best. But the story's not about David. It's about a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God. Hear this. This is the word of God, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and, they, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king says, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show you the kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him to, from the house of Machir to the, from the son of Emil at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, 
came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce. And your master's grandson shall have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we look at this text, we're going to uh, use these as our kind of free headings to break it down. There are past promises here. There are some obvious present fears. And then there are some future benefits or blessings. Past promises to set the context. We know we see here in verse 1 that Jonathan, uh, for Jonathan's sake, King David wants to show kindness. Now, if you'll recall, it was King Saul who had uh, initiated uh, for David to come into his household. David was favored. David is the one who took down Goliath and uh, defeated the Philistines. And uh, even as a young man, by faith in the name of the Lord God, he didn't trust in his sword or his, his, uh, his armor or any weapons. It was ultimately the Lord in the name of the Lord. He was raised up to be a great warrior in Saul's army. And uh, he, he obviously began to have uh, time at the king's table. And he, he married the king's daughter, Saul's daughter. He became close friends with the king's son, Jonathan. They developed a very deep bond of friendship. Jonathan would have been the natural heir to the throne, obviously, uh, after his father. But it was made very clear on a number of occasions through various means that it was God's choice to leave the house of Saul to establish the house of David, that David, who was a man after God's own heart, who had not departed the faith like Saul, was to be the next and uh, true best king for the people, not Saul. Saul, of course, erupts in, uh, in envy and jealousy, but this is not shared by Jonathan. Jonathan is a man of faith, unlike his father Saul, but he's part of that house. And he decides to, uh, to, to bind himself. He and, he and David together bind themselves in covenant in faithfulness to one another as friends. And we read back in 1 Samuel recorded there for us how that covenant is formed in fashion. And it begins with Jonathan's humility. Right? Imagine this, that, that Jonathan, who is the heir, who now knows that it's not going to be him, it's not going to be his, his lineage, it's going to be David. He goes to David and it's recorded in 1 Samuel 18.3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he had on him and gave it to David and to, his, and to him his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And he gave all of this. Now, now this is not merely symbolism. This is a, a deep conveyance of his conviction and his humility to say, 
You're the rightful heir. And I trust you. And you're the one that God has called. And I will uh, now act in faith. Really, it's an expression of what Christian love ought to be. There's times when we realize God's not called me. God's not called me to be the person. God has not called me to prosper. Young people, I know it's everyone's dream in America to be healthy and wealthy. And it may not be God's will for you. And that's not bad, contrary to what advertising would tell you. It's God's call for Jonathan to be in this place. It's God's call for Mephibosheth. It's amazing I made it this long without mispronouncing it. Um, for, him to be, for him to be disabled and lame and crippled. Jonathan's call is to be king. And Jonathan, or David's call is to be king. And Jonathan sees that. Jonathan also commits himself, uh, David and Jonathan, in the, uh, later in 1 Samuel 20. And this is where the, the kindness comes in. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. Jonathan says to David, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And this is exactly what David has in mind. That he would preserve Jonathan. And that he would remember the covenant promises. This is a beautiful picture, right, of friendship and loyalty and deep love. We know that Jonathan, who supported David, of course, did go on to die. He died alongside his father in battle against the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. We read about that. And David grieved. David was, was, had tremendous sorrow, even though it ushered the way in for him to become the king. He grieved at this loss. Covenants, uh, which are in, in many ways, uh, some ways, foreign to us in our modern cultural context. A covenant is a, a promise that is made in, in the context of relationship and deep bonds and stipulations and obligations are attached to it. There's public declarations that take place. It's like when someone joins a church. Uh, our church, they make covenant, they make promises. It's, it's a volitional, willful thing that we do, that we will promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of our ability. And we say it publicly. It's the same thing when people enter into the covenant of marriage. And we say, yes, this is, this is glorious and wonderful when we're dressed in a tuxedo and there's flowers and photographers and a party and a celebration. But there's a season and a time when it's, I've chosen to do this. I'm going to love this person, not because I feel like it, but because I called to and I promised that I would. It's sad that we don't view covenant that way. Praise God. David is a man of his word. He's a man after God's own heart. There's three times that this word is used in verse 1 and in verse 3 and in verse uh, 7. It's, it's conveying the kindness. The Hebrew word there is hesed. It means a covenant love, a covenant loyalty that he would show. It's God's love. It's God's love working that was promised to David and then through David to others to show the loving kindness of God. Mind you that a lot of time has passed. He made that promise many, many years ago. Some estimate upwards of 20 years now. It's been 20 years since that past when he made that covenant with Jonathan. So it could have been a situation where he said, you know what? Things change, right? Feelings change. It's like some people's relationship, again, to the covenant of marriage. We're different people. Times change. People change. I've changed. That was a long time ago. But not so with David. David says, no, 
I, I, David even takes the initiative. It's not like someone had to come to him and say, remind David that he made this promise to Jonathan and to the house. No, no, no. He remembers and he goes to the trouble. He takes the initiative. He sends messengers. He's trying to find if there's any. This is a matter of business that is birthed in love that David has in his heart for a people and for the promise, his allegiance to that. David does not forget the covenant promise. And he's dealing directly with fidelity based on past promises. It's going to be costly to him because he's, you know, you know, he, he's taking in someone of an enemy's household. Saul was part of the previous administration and, and, and was, you know, this is, this is a person who's crippled and lame. This is not someone, you know, normally a king would set up shop and he would have an entourage and a cabinet and a company around him that would benefit him and prosper him and, uh, and advance him in power and wealth. But no, David is saying, I want to take this man and prosper him and bless him, this crippled man. David is taking initiative. God takes initiative. God is not passive. God is not flippant in his promises. So it is here on account of a promise and a person, that person being Jonathan, but David here on account of a promise and a person shows mercy. And the same way, I'm not going to wait till we get to Jesus. This is what our Lord does. It is on account of Jesus that promise, that person, and the promise that was made for an everlasting covenant that would bless the nations, that we get to be included in that because of the mediator of that new covenant and that bond who is Christ. Praise be to God. A past promise with future-looking uh, benefits and blessings and things that flow from that as a reality. So that's what's in view. That's where David is, is acting and why. But then for Mephibosheth, there's this, there, there's this, you know, imagine the scene, right? These, these present fears that he would have felt. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we know that he, uh, as a young boy, he's part of the house of Saul. Saul's household falls. Saul's uh, remaining son, who is this kind of figurehead king, is taken out uh, in the northern uh, tribes. And there's a nurse who is caring for Jonathan. Uh, excuse me, who's, who's caring for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And he is there, he's only four years old. The nurse, in haste, uh, is trying to escape because she's, you know, she's concerned that now they're going to take out the rest of Saul's family. And so she's running, and in haste, she must have fallen. Maybe they were on a horse, we don't know. But as a result, this poor child, uh, Mephibosheth, he's got both of his, his, his feet are broken, presumably. They're deformed now. He will never, he will never walk the rest of his life. He's, he's lame, he's crippled. In fact, this affliction follows him so much so that everywhere that Mephibosheth is mentioned in Scripture, it's always attached to his identity that he is lame and crippled. That's, that's a tragedy. It says that he's this, this person, a young man now. This is, like I said, 20-something years later. He himself has become uh, a young father, and he's living in this, this obscure place. In verse 5, you see there, it's called Lodabar, uh, which in Hebrew literally means uh, you know, no pasture. Uh, I grew up in a little place uh, in a valley in the mountains called Happy Valley, which means Happy Valley. And, uh, and uh, not well, sometimes not so happy, but uh, my parents bought a house there when interest rates were like 17%. So I don't know why they called it Happy Valley. But, uh, but here, here's Lodabar. He's in this obscure place. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not near the king. He's not near resources. He's in a, he's in a desperate place. We have no ind indication that Mephibosheth 
knows about the promise that was made to his father, Jonathan, by King David. There's still many in Israel who are loyal to the previous administration. There are people that, 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 that care for Saul's house that we were not cheering for David. They opposed him. It's like the last two elections in the United States, right? It's like the day after the election, the last two times, there's, none, there's tons of people driving around with a bumper sticker that says, not my president. And, uh, and so there would have been sentiments. There would have been people that, you know, you don't, you don't sustain the, the administration. Kings in the ancient Near East, they eliminated. They said, down with the previous. And, that, and I don't mean you're sequestered to obscurity. You're sometimes executed and sought out and you're done. And that's, I mean, Mephibosheth is thinking, I'm being summoned to the king's house. I'm part of the house. I, to the to you know to the king's presence. I'm part of the lineage of Saul. This could be my last day living. He is understandably fearful. Of course, when he arrives, what happens? He falls on his face. What is he? Look at verse six. It's, he cries out and says, "Look, I'm your servant. I'm nothing. I'm down here on my face." He's he's pleading for what he hopes the only chance would be is mercy. But interestingly, here. I think this is an important part of how the narrator composes this, that all the while he's been referring to David as King David. But here, when we pick up in verse 7, it just says that David, David got down man to man. He doesn't say, yes, that's right, you servant. He looks down and he calls on Mephibosheth and he says, he calls his name and he says, do not fear do not fear, for I intend to show you, look at there, verse 7, kindness. There's that has said. This is restoration. This is hope. This is an immense kindness that the king is showing. Mephibosheth is filled with humble gratitude. Let's look at verse 8. How does he cry out to him? And he paid him homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Think of this. He's lost his family. He has lost, obviously, his mobility many years prior, which is such a big deal in a culture like that where there are no robust you know, social services or insurance or, or ways for, for folks to be who are needy or disabled to care for. And he says to him, listen, it's okay. You're, do not fear. I'm going to show you kindness. You're going to come and you're going to eat at my table and, and you're going to be a part of my family. I may have told this story before. Uh, before the summer before Chris and I were married, um, I took a trip to West Africa to Senegal. It was a mission trip, and I, I traveled with a small group of of, uh, of men out to some villages. This is probably the most. It, it was undoubtedly, at least up until that point in my life, the most remote, primitive place I've ever been in all of my life. And uh, there was this, just a simple, simple village there with no running water. They had a well. Uh, but they had, they had, you know, just this very tiny village. And uh, I remember I had a bag of candy because uh, when I pulled out of the van, this bag of candy, it was like the children came running. It felt like a stampede of horses was coming after me. And it was a sweet day. But I noticed that there was one kid who didn't get candy. And it's because he was over on the remote part. He was on a, a, on a, a kind of an outskirt of the village under a tree. And that's where he, he remained for the entirety of the day, every day. I don't know. He may have had cerebral palsy or, or some other uh, challenge. Um, but he was alone. And I, I, and I did bring him some candy. But I learned more of the story 
And what was even more beautiful is that I learned uh, that there was a young man who traveled with us that day. He would come out on a regular basis. He was a young college student from the United States, a Christian young man, godly, committed to acting out his faith. And he was there. He would go into the village. This man, this young man, who's probably 19 or 20, would go to this crippled boy on the outskirts of this village, and he would wash him and, and provide food for him and show compassion to him. And eventually he raised the money to, to, to develop some type of contraption so this little boy who was ostracized and probably thought because of the animism of the religion around that he had some type of evil spirit. And Jacob would come and show him love and kindness and provide for him. And I remember seeing this. And I, I just remember being so moved and shaken that I was entirely speechless. I walked out of the village and I thought to myself, this is the love of God on display. And God has shown his love towards me that way. I am needy. This, this is a picture of the gospel that I need. And I think that this is illustrated for us in chapter 9 here with King David. And it's a beautiful reality. That's a model. It's a, it's a shadow. It's a type. It points us to a greater king, a king of mercy. Matthew 15, Jesus is showing his compassion and power. We should hear, we should anticipate the echoes of these things. It says in Matthew 15, after Jesus showed that compassion, it says that the crowd sat there and wondered when they saw that the mute was speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Folks, I don't know how else to say this. We are more like Mephibosheth than we are like David did. We're, we're, we, our sin has made us broken. We don't have health. We don't have family line. We don't have our merit. We don't have power, nor hope, nor nobility, nor future, except for a promise and a person. How do you stand before the King of Kings? How do you lay claim to the love of God? I ask people, how do you know God loves you? The Christian answer, what is your answer? How would you claim? What is it? God, I'm better than somebody else. God, I've tried really hard. Lord, I've amassed all of these spiritual disciplines. I, you know, I, I, have, I have done these things in your name. And he would say, no, no, you completely don't understand the gospel. We are more needy, more dependent on God's mercy than we even can possibly imagine. Furthermore, we don't think that others, we don't think of others that way. We think that certain people are way more deserving than others. We think other people need justice when we want mercy for ourselves. We judge people by the outward appearances when God discerns and knows the heart. And we can be so self-righteous. May God have mercy on us. And when he does, and when it hits us, the gospel of the king of grace and mercy is transformative. That's why we see young men like Jacob serving out of that, showing people who are disabled kindness and compassion. Our banner when we stand before God is not us, our merits. It's the love of God. Show me covenant kindness. 
1 Corinthians 4, Paul reminds Christians, what do we, what have you that you did not receive? We have nothing. He's saying we have literally nothing. 1 Corinthians 4, if then you receive this, why do you boast if you did not receive it? What else did Mephibosheth receive? It's true for him, it's true for us, and that's future benefits. Here's our last heading, his future benefits. David assures Mephibosheth that there's no need for him to fear. There's plenty of hope and freedom on account of God's kindness through David. But notice that he doesn't just send him home. He doesn't say to Mephibosheth, well, then head on back to Lodabar. He says, no, you will live here with me and you will be in Jerusalem. And he's going to, he begins in verse nine. If you look there, he starts to restore to him his lands. Then he assigns to Ziba, uh, there, there's going to be a whole you know, there's going to be a whole crew, a whole support team for you that you, you don't just, you know, go back and, uh, you know, enjoy the, the, the freedom from fear. You are going to enjoy uh, life and prosperity and restoration that you had feared was altogether all lost. So let's just summarize again. What are those benefits that this covenant kindness is showing to Mephibosheth and his household? First, there's the love. The second is there's riches and provision, the sustained existence. The last thing that he provides for him is the benefit of adoption. Because what does it say? That's right, verse 11. What does it say when he is enjoying a time at the table? Ziba said to him, to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. What a beautiful picture. What is our plight? Their world, our world. What is our plight? I already referenced this. We, because of sin, are, are broken. It's brought a curse upon us. And just like his blessing is more than just love and provision, it's also adoption. This too, we, we get to see ourselves in this Window, this mirror, this picture. You see, this, this is going to be a lesson. Bear with me. Sentiment versus reality and truth in God's word. We are not, my friends, by nature, children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Jesus says some of them are, some of you, some of us are children of wrath and of Satan. You heard it read earlier in our New Testament reading. Romans 5, verse 10 says, If while you were enemies of God, not friends, not children, not, not, no, not servants, we were enemies. It was read to us. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Ephesians 2 says that it's our disobedience our willful disobedience, all of us to a person, sins of commission, sins of omission, are children of wrath, not children of God. And if you want to be a child of God, it is open to all. His table is open to all who would repent and believe. That could be you today. To turn from sin and trust in yourself, to acknowledge your need, to fall at His feet and enjoy His forgiveness and trust Jesus Christ. It's his adoption. Ephesians 1 says that it was in love. Ephesians 1, 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What is the sweetest, finest, highest blessing that we enjoy as Christians, as followers of Christ? It's that now we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Adoption, not previously, but now having been adopted at great expense into his family. J.I. Packer, the great uh, Anglican theologian who died just a year or two ago, puts it so well. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. Thanks be to God. Mephibosheth is standing on a person and a promise, and his posture is humility. I'm a dead dog. What is it like for you? What would you hold up and claim is the reason that God loves you? Are you concerned about that? Do you want to know? What? Why would you claim the love of God, a place at his table? My friends, our only argument, our only case is the love of God the Father, the blood of God the Son. And his precious promises, the king's precious promises. We don't have to come and, and lay down and grovel at his feet. He grabs us and says to you, to me, sons and daughters, stand up. Do not fear. Come to my table. To my table. Fellowship, communion, peace, reconciliation, inheritance, life. He's invited us to a table of mercy on account of King Jesus. Thanks be to him. Before we come to this table, let's give thanks pray. Father, please glorify yourself. I pray that you would grant to us humble hearts of humility, that you would, you would strengthen us in our walk towards new obedience. Would you strengthen us even now as we come to your table? Would you please hammer out our pride and turn it into compassion? Would you hammer out any self-righteousness shape it and mold it into love and grace. Would you help us, Lord, to be a people who remember your covenant commitments? Would you forgive us for the times that we have forgotten or we've chosen not to remember? Forgive us for not taking you at your word, for forgetting your promises. Guide us. Lord, I'm grateful that you've answered many prayers. You've provided opportunities and jobs. You've provided, even this morning, I'm reminded uh, the sweet reunion with some of our college students and I pray your blessing on them and their studies and their work and their rest this week. I pray for people, Lord, in our midst who will be traveling this week that you would grant to them mercies and travel. You have granted us mercies for which we're grateful. Help us to focus on that, that you might free us and strip us of grumbling and discontent, that we would be a grateful people for your mercy. Teach us, we pray. Christ's good and all-sufficient name. Even now, as we pray in his name, as he taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 